G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. So we've been talking a bit about comics and superheroes this season, which is uh, always one of my favourite uh, topics to discuss. It's been uh, pretty fun. Yeah, while we're thinking along those lines and reading Genesis 2, I couldn't help but think about one of the more endearing characters from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Who's your favourite Guardian in the films, Chris? Look, I do like uh, I do like Star Lord. He's, I guess, the most obvious candidate. But uh, Groot, he's very likable. Yeah, he is likable. Groot is very marketable. I guess you know yeah. you can put him on a lot of things, and I've seen Christmas ornaments and stuff. Um, he's kind of like Grogu, you know, Baby Yoda, oh, yeah. as he was once known. He's very marketable, and everybody kind of loves him. We have Baby Groot too, so maybe it's just baby stuff. <laughs> Very true. What about outside of the movies? Have you got a you got a favourite Guardian? Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy have been in the comics for for decades, really, but um, only probably only a few years before the the first film took off. That kind of the team that we know them um, as really took off. Um, but I do like uh, Warlock or Adam Warlock or he or him. I think he may be called. So he goes by yeah. various different incarnations. So he's. Um, actually popping up in Guardians Galaxy Volume 3, and he has been cast. Oh, no, I can't wait. Yeah, so he's a very interesting kind of character. And, um, yes, kind of, there are kind of Christ parallels there and Adam. stuff, um, as there are with quite a few superheroes, <laughs> lots of yeah. death and rebirth and cosmic stuff. So he's probably my most, uh, my favourite non-film Guardian. There you go, and we can only say that because it hasn't quite happened yet. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that one. And yeah, I, I, I would, I would have probably gone for Adam Warlock myself. Actually, uh, mm. I, I've been, yeah, looking forward to this one. I'm impressed so, to know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. You've really done your research, as you always. I, do. I, I do have to research these things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, getting back to the movies, I actually do like Drax. I, I think it's just the that literalism and that that really dry sort of uh, rationalism that he he brings uh, mm. to the films because just reminds me of people I know people I come across not any individual persons but uh, it seems every time I jump online and I uh, I get on YouTube and start delving into uh, Bible study videos and people's uh, thoughts about uh, crazy topics like the stuff we cover here and mm-hmm. all that get right out there in the weird fringe, I find people like Drax because they just, <laughs> they've got no concept of genre, no understanding of figurative speech. Like they just read the text and go, well, that's what it says. Like how could it mean anything else? <laughs> that's very good parallels. So what are we actually talking about in uh, today's episode? Well, I kind of hinted at this last week, so spoiler alert, it's already been spoiled. But uh, today we're going to talk about the trees in the Garden of Eden and we're going to talk about what that language represents and how it works in this narrative, which means you can't read it like Drax the Destroyer. We'll begin with the text from Genesis 2, and this is verse 9. I've got the King James. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so we know we're in Eden, wherever that is, and specifically we're in this garden within Eden. And by now we should know, because we're already familiar with this story, that this is a place where God dwells. It's not just where God visits, it's where he rests. 
And for those who came in late, we went through Genesis 1 last season, which concluded with the notion that God's Sabbath rest is not him doing nothing like he's sitting by the pool in a cabana, sipping cocktails with little umbrellas out of coconut shells. God is actively ruling the cosmos from a position of command and complete control. Chaos has been subdued. The earth is ready for mankind as God's representatives to enact God's will and begin the rollout of order around the world. And the Garden of Eden is where that starts. For the purposes of ancient Israel, that's the centre of the universe. So naturally, God is surrounded by his heavenly host in this place that functions as the convergence between the heavens, the earth, and the underworld. This is where the divine and the earthly not only touch, but be one, because God is there. Basically, what I'm getting at is that if God isn't there, then that place doesn't function the way that Eden functions. It's just any other ordinary place. And that's why I think that if the search for Eden is motivated by the desire to gain the powers of the tree of life or the tree of knowledge or to gain access to the place where God is most manifest, then I would suggest that it's a quest doomed to end in folly and madness. So I suppose I need to say once again that there's absolutely no scriptural support for this idea of stargates or cosmic portals to other dimensions and all kinds of science fiction rubbish. That's not how this works. The reason that we're able to say that in this place God dwells with his divine counsel in a manifest sense is because divine entities are able to control the degree to which they are manifest in any natural space in as far as the nature of their being gives them the power to do so. So obviously at one end of that spectrum you've got God who can do whatever he wants. And then as we move down the scale we're looking at lesser gods who can manifest in bodily form or invisibly in idols and kings and in the heavens all at once and then there are angels who can be embodied and have to travel from one place to another and then there are entities like demons that are disembodied and unable to materialize at all but still have influence in the natural world so eden is the place where god decides that he will hold counsel and he'll do so in a way that interacts directly with the physical world that he's created of which the man is a part both of the world and of the divine counsel so if that's the case where are all the members of this council let's talk about trees that's why i mentioned the guardians of the galaxy i'm talking about groot he's the alien who's actually a plant who only says i am groot every time he talks yeah groot's pretty cool and he's got some pretty awesome powers um and he can say all kinds of things but because he's a tree like character and his vocal cords are made of wood whatever he says ends up sounding like i am groot in your best in diesel voice so you have to actually learn how his expressions and inflections and all that kind of work to be able to tell what he's really saying beyond i am groot well you know given that his voice by vin diesel is probably saying something about family or something like that <laughs> yes living life a quarter mile at a time yep that's right yeah you know kind of, kind of like me before i've had my coffee in the morning i think i don't make any so Last week in the Q&A <laughs> segment, I did mention the epic of Gilgamesh and how the description of Gilgamesh killing Humbaba was told in the terms of the cutting down of a cosmic tree. So the idea that trees represent living beings, both divine and human, was already well known in the ancient Near East, hundreds if not thousands of years before the biblical narratives were written. And once again, I have to say, that doesn't mean that biblical authors plagiarised ancient Near Eastern stories. It just means that if you're in that culture, then what you produce is a product of that culture and the biblical authors are no different to any other. They're in that culture, so that's what they do. And speaking of ancient culture and my distaste for science fiction as it serves as an interpretive hermeneutic for the study of scripture, let me just say once again that just because we modern people are able to imagine celestial beings as flora colossi from outer space, it doesn't mean that ancient people thought the same thing, but just lacked the language or the interpretive framework, although I'm sure they didn't speak Latin. 
So to be clear, we're also not talking about tree folk, nymphs or fairies. We are talking about one of the ways that ancient people talked about divine beings that had some connection to the earth and yet were also able to reach heaven. But we have to be careful with our imagery and try not to get too literal with it or push the analogy too far. When angels come from heaven, they don't have to enter the atmosphere from space. They simply manifest. They become accessible where they had been inaccessible previously. And how do ancient people talk about that? Well, they use concrete terms that describe it. Angels aren't up high because they live on clouds or they travel in flying saucers. They're up high because they're beyond our reach. As an example of that kind of thing, if we look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So uh, in this context, uh, Elisha is basically demonstrating that the whole time when they couldn't see the armies of the Lord, they were present there the whole time. And it was just a question of God enabling that vision required to be able to see them. But they were actually there all along and they weren't up in the sky or whatever. They were in the scene in that environment. The chariots of fire weren't traveling in the sky. They were on the mountain. Even though we don't have the language of descent from heavenly places, we still have a certain extent to which concrete terminology is required in order to facilitate communication. I mean, after all, does anybody really think that there are horses and chariots in heaven? I'm going to go with no on that one, but whatever it is that Elisha saw, he had to describe it in some sense. And he certainly doesn't have the vocabulary to describe glorious divine beings scientifically. And it's a clumsy analogy, but when you watch Star Wars and you see Yoda or Obi-Wan Kenobi die and they just fade from view and their clothes fall empty to the floor, you're witnessing a similar thing. This is our best attempt at being able to describe something indescribable. And whatever terminology you're going to attempt to use, it's going to fall short. The point is the concept rather than the execution, whether in film or in written media. Things change over time, though, and where Genesis just has divine beings walking around like men, for example, in Abraham's encounter prior to the destruction of Sodom. Later, we get this Greek materialism creeping in. So Jesus ascends until he's hidden in the clouds. Is heaven in outer space? No, this is accommodation in the text. This is how you describe something in line with the thinking of the day. For the Greeks, that meant heaven was out beyond the spheres. But in ancient Israelite thought, it's not about locality as much as it's about access. And the other reason the clouds are mentioned is as part of the cloud rider motif that stands against the Canaanite Baal mythology. Our God is the cloud rider, not Baal. Anyway, we can't talk about this all day. As I mentioned before, I covered a lot of cosmology last season on the podcast, and you can also read about it in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. But all of that is just to make the point that even if we walked right into the geographical Eden right now, we couldn't expect to find a galactic wormhole in the universal neural teleportation network or a space bridge, Stargate, the TARDIS, a dimensional portal, or any of that kind of rubbish. That's just not how this works. And don't forget about the uh, the Bifrost Rainbow Bridge from Thor. Oh, well, if we overlay Norse mythology under the Bible framework, we'll see that the Rainbow Bridge eventually gets breached at Ragnarok, which we can consider something like the Day of the Lord, because the end of the world. And in that day, the giants storm the earth and lay waste to it, much like the devastation unleashed in Revelation 9 when the abyss is open. I wrote about that in my book, although I didn't reference the Norse mythology aspect of it. Another view of the breaching of the Rainbow Bridge could be as an interpretation of the Great Flood, but I won't spoil that now. You'll have to wait till we cover the flood in depth. Pardon the pun. 
all that is to say I don't really mind the mythological interpretation of these kind of things, but doing it as some kind of science fiction is an entirely different paradigm. The problem with the Bifrost as an analogy for some kind of access between heaven and earth is that it assumes distance between the two, which the Bible may accommodate but never affirms. So if we can put the science fiction fantasy behind us for a moment, try and get ourselves in the headspace of the ancient Israelites who live very much in the real world, then we should have a much better chance of understanding what's going on in the biblical text. So in the Blyton's magic faraway tree, that has different lands spinning around up the top. What about that? Or what about the wood between the worlds in the uh, classic C.S. Lewis story, The Magician's Nephew? I'm sure there's many, many other examples as well. Oh, yeah, so many. Yeah. Well, my kids love those. Um, and, yeah, then you've got uh, stuff like Jack and the Beanstalk too. You know, they, they go up the, up the Beanstalk uh-huh. and there's a, another land up there and above the clouds. There you go. Giants, we can't get away from this stuff, right? Well, you know, <laughs> they are cool stories, but they, they all have this idea of some liminal space between realms. But the Garden of Eden isn't between. It's both. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. Um, but why are we talking about trees? as if they're gods. Why trees specifically and not clouds or dogs or horses or houses or rocks or any manner of other things? This is all about how trees work and what they do. This analogy works for humans, for human kings, for gods, and for human god kings too, any combination thereof. So the key to figuring out who's being referred to is in the context, here in Eden, we're aware of only one human couple, and they're not the trees in this story. No other humans are in the story. So we're dealing with the gods. Now let's work out how this analogy works. Trees grow in strength, magnificence, and glory. And their height is representative of proximity to deity, to heaven, and glory. Trees have branches that spread out, showing how far their influence can spread over the land, like the ruler of a territory. Trees need strong roots to ensure that they are stable and powerful and their position is secure. Trees drink water to give them vitality and the source of that water determines how they grow. Water can come from good or bad places. Trees provide food and shelter to those who take refuge in their branches like the way a ruler provides for his subjects. Trees influence the area around them by throwing shade which is the indirect influence of the branches on surrounding territory. This isn't shade as in side-eye at the dinner table between relatives who aren't speaking. It's diplomatic relationships and political influence. And trees can be planted or cut down by others, just like people can. Even the gods can be cut down by the Most High, as we see in Psalm 82, Ezekiel 31, and Daniel 4. Then we've got a uh, a verse here from Isaiah chapter 40. This is verses 23 and 24. From the New English translation, he is the one who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the earth's leaders insignificant. Indeed, they are barely planted. Yes, they are barely sown. Yes, they barely take root in the earth. And then he blows on them, causing them to dry up. And the wind carries them away like straw. So, yeah, there's an example of the language of trees applied to human rulers. Actually, if we're uh, if we're looking at that, it just says rulers, not necessarily human. So hopefully you can see now how we use trees to talk about either humans or gods or deified humans, whatever the case may be. Again, I talk about this more in my book. And with that understanding in mind, we're going back to Ezekiel 31. We've, we've been spending a bit of time since we started talking about Eden. And we're going to run through that chapter applying the same approach we've taken to our biblical cosmology and symbolism so far. We're starting at verse 1. 
in the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Who are you like in your greatness? Think of Assyria, a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and shady foliage, and of lofty height. Its top was among the clouds. Now I just want to cut in here and point out that while most translations have the word Assyria as in the name of the nation, there are some like the King James that render it as the Assyrian. The Hebrew actually doesn't distinguish. So in other words, they're talking about a divine being who is representative of the nation because he rules it through his human proxy, the king. So if you've got the interpretive framework correct and you read this as an Israelite would have read it, it doesn't really matter whether you have the Assyrian or simply Assyria because whichever way you cut it, we're talking about the representation of that nation by a single being who is the embodiment of the God who was known in those days as Ashur. Note how this human king who embodies the God is spoken of in terms of being a tree on a sacred mountain, just like what we saw in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Again, we've got the top that reaches to heaven, so there's an ascent to divinity there, or contact with the divine and the foliage and the branches describes the reach of his influence geographically and politically. Right, we'll carry on reading verse 4. The waters caused it to grow. The underground springs made it tall, directing their rivers all around the place where the tree was planted and sending their channels to all the trees of the field. And here again, we've got the waters coming up from the deep, which we talked about last season. So this is the place where spiritual power comes from, where the Babylonians thought was a good place and the Israelites are going to say that's the bad place. In this post-Eden analogy, the trees of the field are lesser beings. They're not gods, like Ashur. Instead, they're human kings under the influence of the spirits of the dead Nephilim, which would make them Rephaim kings. All of them together are drawing their power, represented here by water, from the bad place that the Israelites would call the deep or Sheol. And for those who've read my book, you know that the most significant part of this verse is the phrase rendered here as caused it to grow, which is in Hebrew, gadal. It derives from the same root that is used elsewhere as gadil to twist together. So in answers to giant questions, I go into detail about how the connotation of a human king becoming twisted together with the waters of the great deep in this text is a subtle nod to the necromancy ritual performed by the Amorites to summon the spirits of the Nephilim. And we get back to, where are we, verse 5. Therefore the cedar became greater in height than all the trees of the field. Its branches multiplied and its boughs grew long as it spread them out because of the abundant water. So this is the Assyrian gaining influence as his powers increase. All the birds of the sky nested in its branches and all the animals of the field gave birth beneath its boughs. All the great nations lived in its shade. Remembering our discussion of the animals and the birds from Genesis 1 last season, we're now seeing them as representing the assembling of a new order around this king. It was beautiful in its size, in the length of its limbs, for its roots extended to abundant water. The cedars in God's garden could not eclipse it. The pine trees couldn't compare with its branches, nor could the plane trees match its boughs. No tree in the garden of God could compare with it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its many limbs, and all the trees of Eden which were in God's garden envied it. Now, obviously, trees are great and all, but terms like beauty don't really go well with plants in the natural sense here. And, and the other trees envy it. So you should be seeing by now that this language for, for what it is, the trees are not just plants. In verse 10, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Since it towered high in stature and set its top among the clouds, and it grew proud on account of its height. We're really getting this fall of Satan kind of language here, right? Just, just 
just like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Uh, back to verse 11, I determined to hand it over to a ruler of nations. He would surely deal with it. I banished it because of its wickedness. Foreigners, ruthless men from the nations, cut it down and left it lying. Its limbs fell on the mountains and in every valley. Its boughs lay broken in all the earth's ravines. All the peoples of the earth left its shade and abandoned it. All the birds of the sky nested on its fallen trunk and all the animals of the field were among its boughs. This happened so that no trees planted beside water would become great in height, set their tops among the clouds, and so that no other well-watered trees would reach them in height, for they have all been consigned to death, to the underworld, among the people who descend to the pit. So God took action, as I alluded to last week in the Q&A. Whatever he did, he made sure that this wouldn't happen again. And we'll keep going. Verse 15, this is what the Lord God says. I caused grieving on the day the cedar went down to Sheol. I closed off the underground deep because of it. I held back the rivers of the deep and its abundant water was restrained. I made Lebanon mourn on account of it. And all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its downfall when I threw it down to Sheol to be with those who descend to the pit. Then all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all the well-watered trees were comforted in the underworld. They too descended with it to Sheol, to those slain by the sword. As its allies, they had lived in its shade among the nations. So trees in the underworld, slain by swords, you, you know these aren't trees now, right? We're talking about the kings of the nations allied with the Assyrian here. In verse 18, to finish, Who then are you like in glory and greatness among Eden's trees? You also will be brought down to the underworld to be with the trees of Eden. You will lie among the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his hordes. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So the passage ends with God reminding the Egyptian Pharaoh that he's no greater than the Assyrian and Egypt would suffer the same fate as Assyria did. This motif appears elsewhere in the ancient world and there are other examples in scripture, most notably Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the tree in Daniel 4. We call this the cosmic tree motif. And the idea is that this one guy rules the world empire of the day and claims divinity because he is the embodiment of a god. This guy has connections to the bad place underground, which is where he gets his spiritual influence and his top reaches the heavens because he's so powerful. Notice how height is connected to power and glory. He's got these huge branches that spread out and the surrounding nations depend on him for their food and security. Outlying territories enjoy the shade or protection that this king offers them and the whole world depends on this guy holding power over the land as the human proxy of a deity. Let me be clear, the cosmic tree motif is not and never was about actual enormous trees that reach up to heaven. That would be thinking like Drax the Destroyer here. This is a figure of speech not to be taken seriously as a literal tree. So... Don't bother sending me pictures of the Devil's Tower in Wyoming contrasted with the tree stump. Save yourself the time. I don't care how many rock formations you think look like tree stumps or giant people for that matter. If you're basing your worldview on scripture and allowing the first audience of scripture to guide your hermeneutics, you won't fall for these fantasies. Oh, and for those who haven't got my book yet, are you aware that Nimrod is actually called the Assyrian in scripture? Think about that as you go over Ezekiel 31. So are you saying this whole passage is one big illusion to Nimrod? Yeah, it took us more than six months, but we finally got around to some giant-related stuff in our regular Bible study portion of the show. It's like listening to an ent talking. You must understand, young hobbit. It well done. It takes a long time to say anything in old entish. And we never say anything unless 
it is worth taking a long time to say. And since I am taking the time to say it, let me be clear on this. As far as the population of Eden is concerned, there was only ever one man and one woman allowed in. These trees of Eden are divine figures, not humans. And just like real fruit trees, they offered all manner of benefits to the man and his wife. Because being pleasant to the eye and good for food means more than just being pretty and delicious. So were there giants in Eden? No, they came Aww. later. Okay. Let's talk about eating fruit. In the ancient world, to eat something is to take it in and make it part of your body, to bring it under your control and make it serve your purposes. When you eat something, it contributes to your size and your strength. You eat food because it gives you the power to do stuff. We talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sometimes as if it was the only tree of any kind of knowledge in the garden, but the text does not actually say that. The other trees of the garden had good things to offer, and that was most likely in the form of knowledge, instruction, and wisdom in one form or another. There was a Greek tradition that the oak trees in the grove next to Zeus's sanctuary could prophesy. Even after they were cut down, the timbers that were used to make that famous ship, the Argo, would warn the sailors of trouble ahead. There is a substantial tradition in scripture demonstrating the idea that divine beings taught mankind and gave them guidance. As an example, this is part of Stephen's speech when he was about to be martyred. Acts 7.53 says, You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it. Now, listening to that wisdom could be spoken of as eating their fruit. Lady Wisdom speaks in the book of Proverbs like this. Proverbs 8 verse 19, my fruit is better than solid gold and my harvest than pure silver. So we're talking about wisdom in terms of something you can eat. But we must also be clear on another point of critical importance, and I've addressed this in a previous podcast episode, but for those who came in late, hear me on this. There is no way in which the language of scripture can be used to imply that the eating of fruit carries any kind of meaning associated with sexual activity. It just isn't done. There are no examples of it. And implying that that's what it means here in Genesis 2 brings with it a world of interpretive problems that just lead to confusion and nonsense and destroying the meaning of this entire story just for the sake of trying to read a different one out of this text. It's called Serpent Seed Doctrine, and it's a heretical cancer on the church even today. If you want to hear more about that, go back and listen to the last uh, half a dozen episodes of Season 1 of the show. By the way, speaking of fruit in Eden, did you know that in most European languages the old word for fruit back in medieval times was apple and we've all been prancing around pontificating about how much we knew about the bible saying it doesn't say apple it says fruit and all this time we didn't realize that when people were saying apple they were really just saying an old word that means fruit this whole time so you know what it's an apple deal with it so what about the tree of life ah the book of proverbs mentions the tree of life more than any other book in the bible and what it tells us is that the tree of life comes from God and it bears the fruit of God's goodness. We also have the tree of life spoken of in the book of Revelation and spoken of in terms of the presence of God and the blessings of being in his presence. That's good news because the last time we heard about the tree of life before the book of Revelation was written was in First Enoch. And according to First Enoch, the tree of life existed, but it was in that inaccessible realm of the heavens, witnessed only in a vision but unable to be enjoyed. Here's First Enoch 24 verses 9 to 10 and that tree of an agreeable smell not one of carnal odor there shall be no power to touch until the period of the great judgment when all shall be punished and consumed forever this shall be bestowed on the righteous and humble the fruit of this tree shall be given to the elect 
For towards the north, life shall be planted in the holy place, towards the habitation of the everlasting king. Then shall they greatly rejoice and exult in the Holy One. The sweet odour shall enter into their bones, and they shall live a long life on the earth, as thy forefathers have lived. Neither in their days shall sorrow, distress, trouble, and punishment afflict them. Now, I should probably add that while First Enoch isn't canon, it's usually consistent with canon, and proof of that is the fact that every New Testament author uses ideas that derive from First Enoch, including John's use of several ideas in Revelation. So the tree of life in Genesis 3 is connected directly to blessings in the presence of God himself, and it would appear that proximity to God is in itself what sustains your life. This isn't about magic fruit. Notice also how First Enoch connects the final judgment with access to the tree. In other words, as long as sin is present in the world, there can be no access to the tree of life. Even Moses saw a tree of life, the burning bush that was not consumed, and that was in the presence of God. The other tree then. Is that kind of like the opposite to the tree that you've been describing? Well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil functions oppositionally in this story, but I think that's only the case because we know what happens in the story. Unfortunately, we may never know if it was the intent of God to allow access to this knowledge at the right time, or perhaps not at all. That is, speaking from a textual standpoint, we can argue about the theological implications until the kingdom come, but the text isn't telling us whether or not there was going to be a right time for God to permit access to this particular tree, because the point being made is, you shall not eat of it. Having said that, we're still in Genesis 2, we're not reading Genesis 3 yet, and so in the context that's given and with the information provided, it seems only right to conclude that the presence and the provision of such a tree had to be seen as a good thing because we're not out among the non-ordered inhabitants of the wilderness here. This is God's centre of cosmic order, and he has placed things according to his good pleasure. After all, the name Eden means delight. So perhaps it isn't too much of a stretch to infer that the tree of knowledge of good and evil might have been made accessible to the humans in the garden at the right time and by the permission of God. Uh, that's actually especially true when we consider the tradition that talks about that tree in terms of a kind of decision-making power, like a certain kind of maturity where you come of an age to know good and evil. So there, there are some traditions around that. But having said that, we don't find that tree in the New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it would appear that it is never mentioned again in all of Scripture. So that's an interesting thought. How could it be that in the restoration of all things, in the new heavens and the new earth, everything is put right as it once was, with the exception of all who cause evil, and with no mention at all of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, if we understand that these trees are divine beings, then it makes sense, because we know where to expect to find the tree of life, and we know the ultimate fate of those rebellious sons of God who provided the mechanism that brought evil into the world. So does that mean that this tree in Eden that Ezekiel was talking about, was that Satan or something? I mean, this story in Genesis 2 uses both the tree of knowledge and the serpent. So are they describing the same supernatural baddie? Well, there are reasons you could argue for or against that idea. But the first thing we need to consider is that the one we call Satan isn't the only bad guy, and yet God warns the man of only one danger in the garden, and it isn't the serpent. We have no reason to suspect that there was 
more than one divine rebel active in the garden in the original story here, but when we get to Genesis 6, there are several. First Enoch expands on that and tells us that there are 200. So it would seem easiest to assume that one divine rebel had turned into a significant number between Genesis 3 and 6. In fact, if we argue that the technological explosion of Genesis 4 is attached to the Watcher story together with Genesis 6, then we can shorten that time frame significantly. The situation in Eden may have escalated quickly, but it seems apparent from the text that it started with only one. That one original bad guy is clearly the serpent because he's the one who ended up holding the hot potato and God started asking questions. And you might ask, if he's one of these divine beings, how come he isn't one of the trees in the garden then? And I would suggest that that's because the author has some very specific things he wants to communicate about this guy. And that's why he uses the term Nachash, which translates to serpent or shining one or diviner. We'll talk more about that when we get to Genesis 3 next season. Awesome. Sounds good. So what have we got planned in the meantime? What's coming up next episode? Yeah, so next week we have our first interview for this season, and I'm going to be talking with Dr. Judd Burton about his work, his thoughts on giants, in particular the Rephaim, and we'll just chew the fat a bit. Might even see what he thinks about the location of Eden. For those who haven't heard of Dr. Judd Burton, he's an amazing guy. PhD in history with a master's in anthropology. He's in archaeology. He's into all that paranormal stuff, cryptids, legendary monsters, that kind of stuff. It's going to be a great interview. Yeah, that sounds like um, pretty interesting topics that we covered there and an interesting guy for sure. It's going to be cool. Yeah, and then after that, we'll get back to our own explorations and we'll see if we can learn anything about the location of Eden before we have to move on with the rest of our season. But for now, let's talk about something else. Good idea. Are you ready for a giant question? Okay, let's have it. Alrighty. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. So we have a question here from Tracy in the Raven Creek Paddle Store which is an exclusive Facebook group for people who donate to support us and other wonderful podcasters on the Raven Creek Social Club Patreon page. Tracy asks, were they trying to worship Yahweh at Babel or a different god? And by the way, is it Babel or Babel? Yeah, if we've been technical, it's probably Bab-El. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that is a good question, Tracy. Thanks for asking. So the first part of this is understanding ziggurats. That's what we call these Mesopotamian stepped pyramid structures that once featured in major centres of worship throughout ancient Babylonia and elsewhere around the world. So ziggurats have been around for millennia, and the oldest ones that still stand today in Mesopotamia date to about 5400 BC. However, it should be noted that the structures are sometimes found on top of much older ruins that date back as far as 11,000 BC. The idea of a ziggurat is basically an artificial mountain. In the cosmology of the ancient world, the gods lived in high places because they were inaccessible to man. That's bad if you live in a place with low elevation. So in order to get the gods to come to your town, you had to build your own mountain. Then you made a temple, dedicated it, installed idols, and you'd invite the deity of your choice to come and move in. 
Now, for all the thousands of ancient texts in tablets, inscriptions, and statuary that we found in ancient Mesopotamia, we have exactly nothing that indicates the knowledge of a God identical to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the time preceding the Babylonian captivity. When we turn to evidence from pottery and other artifacts of civilization, we find that the only event that matches the biblical Tower of Babel event is what scholars call the Uruk expansion. This is the first evidence of a sudden outward migration from a central point that featured a ziggurat, characterized by the first occurrence of people from different language groups coexisting as neighbors in the same localities and sharing a common pottery style. So, of course, you know where all that's going if you've read Genesis 11. The ziggurat at the center of this world-changing event is the one at Eridu, which precedes Israelite religion by at least 3,000 years and was dedicated to Enki. That's uh, literally from the Sumerian, God of the Earth, who was believed to reside in the Apsu, or the Abyss. The accompanying temple was called E-Apsu, House of the Abyss. So, yeah, friendly guy, I'm sure. These ziggurats were built with the intent that they would reach heaven, but you'd be mistaken if you thought that it meant people were trying to use these towers to get to the sky. When they use that expression, they're talking about the intent to attain divinity for themselves. Because by their own admission, the gods they were most interested in communing with were actually summoned from below. There's actually a whole lot more I could say about this as it forms a significant part of my book, Answers the Giant Questions. And it plays a major role in explaining how the giants are able to return after the flood. So if you want more information about that, I recommend you pick up a copy for yourself or you can grab it on Kindle if you're not keen on physical hard copies. And of course, as we continue in this podcast from one season to the next, we'll keep digging deeper into these mysteries and revealing more from in-depth study of the scriptural text, because that's what we do here. So stick around. We'll bring you some more soon. We'll hit Babel when we get to Genesis 11, of course. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it as always. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Asking if anybody actually sees the little subtitles, you know, because you know, for each episode oh. in the notes there, I put a little yes. subtitle. Yes.
and I don't see it come up on the website or on the podcast app or whatever. I don't know where it goes. Oh, okay. I don't know if anybody ever sees them. I try so hard to be witty. You do. So it's very, very hard. I have to try hard. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> no, you're doing you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Yeah, I don't know. Do you reckon baby Drax would go well? Well, I'm sure. Look, everyone was a baby at some point, and that's about the depth that I will bring to this uh, conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the purposes. Yes, and uh, as previously discussed, he's uh, pretty cute um, until, like all of us, he grows up and uh, the cuteness slowly disappears over time. Um, oh, that's cute. Talking. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and he can say all kinds of things, but, he, you know, he's a true in his race. He's a true. Well, he's, he's a true, but he's also true. Well, no, he's not true because he's a fictional character. Um, his race have actually, his vocal cords are made of wood um, and they're stiff and they're hard. So whenever he ends up, uh, whenever he says whatever uh, look let's just try that again I was, I was getting so well it's going so well there we're not also we're we're not also we're much like the devil there I, I wrote about that in my book although i didn't reference the north myth north north norse i'll get there eventually the norse mythology aspect of it Another view of the breaching of the <laughs> honestly. Uh, another v- <laughs> I'm losing it here. What about that? Or what about the world? The world? We're not having a good one today, are we? You're going to be doing a lot of editing. We, we've had too much uh, eggnog. Mm. Um, is eggnog still around? I don't know. I had some okay. before. No, did you? Oh, okay. I'll have to get some. They're not, uh, they're not thin cigars, cigarettes. They're, uh, they're pyramids. <laughs> 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 oh.